The gospel is the good news that by faith alone, our sin is imputed to Christ, that by grace alone, the active and passive obedience of Christ is imputed to us. Now, for some people, that's a relatively new concept. They never really thought about the gospel that way, never thought about it in relationship to what Christ has done. It was always something that they were taught was based on what they did because they walked an aisle or they raised their hand or they prayed a sinner's prayer. But the reality is the obedience of Christ is the linchpin, is the very heartbeat of a proper understanding of the gospel. And that is why over the last several weeks we have been reiterating and repeating this and will continue to through the rest of this series in the book of Galatians. What I'd like to do this morning is also say something that perhaps um, would be helpful for you if you were here last week and, and, and left a little bit confused. You know, as we're learning these things, we're learning them together. I'm not exactly that far ahead of many of you when it comes to understanding these truths. I'm learning them as, as I go as well. They're, they're new to me every week. They're, they're opening up to me in new ways. I have a deeper and deeper appreciation for these truths that have been the very foundation of Reformation theology ever since the gospel was recovered from the Roman Catholic Church. And so sometimes in my eagerness and in my excitement, I will say something that uh, I probably am not ready to reference yet. And that happened to me last week. I inadvertently referred to the active and passive righteousness of Christ. And I meant to say obedience. Now, if you didn't catch that, then pretend I didn't say that. You can go on believing that I never make mistakes. But if you did catch that and you drove home and you said to your spouse, I don't think he meant what he said back there, you would be correct. The active and passive righteousness concept is one that we're going to get into in a little while, uh, but that was not meant to be disclosed last week. What we really want to focus on is the active and passive obedience of Christ because that is how we understand the law, and that's the whole point in the short letter to the Galatians. And so, what I would remind you of is that the active obedience of Christ means that He kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled it entirely. He obeyed it without exception. He did everything that the first Adam was supposed to do. He came in to this world sent by the Father from heaven to live the perfect life in human flesh so that the all-sufficient merit could be imputed to you when you put your faith in Him. But He also, and this is so important, is responsible for the passive obedience, which means that he paid the price as if he had not obeyed the law. What we forget sometimes is that Jesus Christ came into this world and took on human flesh. He was truly man and truly God. And the true flesh that he took on, note this well, was a cursed 
flesh. Jesus Christ lived his entire incarnate life on earth in cursed flesh that was subject to the consequences of sin, though he was never guilty of sin. And by the consequences, what I mean is that his body was real. His body was made of flesh. His body got hungry. His body got tired. His body felt pain. His body could die. And so in his suffering from day one until the time of his death, he was bearing in himself the consequences that were due to all that had failed to uphold the law. And we call that his passive righteousness, meaning that it was the debt that had to be paid. When he died on the cross, he died to pay the debt that all who sin are required to pay. And so we get both. (laughs) The perfect obedience, active merit of Jesus Christ given to you and He doesn't treat you as if you've never sinned. Far from it, He treats you as if you have sinned. But that every ounce of wrath that was intended to be poured out upon you has been fully, completely, and totally poured out on a substitute, Jesus Christ. So you stand before the Father in that final day, justified and declared righteous, so that you don't need to plead His mercy. You demand His justice because God is a just God, and His justice has been met, but just not in you. It's been met in Christ, and it's been given to you. Amen? Here's the argument in Galatians 2, 11 to 21. You will be free from the law when you understand the finished work of Christ. You will be free from the law when you understand the finished work of Christ. We are in a section of the letter to the Galatians, a group of house churches that met together in and around present-day Ankara, Turkey, who had come to faith in Jesus Christ because evangelists had brought the gospel, likely from Jerusalem, after all had heard the, language, uh, heard the gospel in their own language on the day of Pentecost, and because of persecution had been spread out around the Roman Empire of that time, and this church was then strengthened and reinforced in their gospel understanding by Paul, who had done ministry up in the area for 14 years after his training in Arabia. And it is to this group of Christians that Paul is now writing a passionate letter, a letter from a heartbroken pastor, from a man who is astonished and bewildered at how quickly this church has turned on him and turned on the gospel. And so he writes this with a certain degree of righteous indignation. And chapter 2 is a tale of two visits In the first case, you have Paul who makes the visit to Jerusalem, and now you see Peter making a visit to Antioch. In the first one, it was very private among a small group of influential leaders. In the second one, it's very public among the very church itself. 
In the first one, it resulted in joy and unity. And in the second one, it resulted in turmoil and conflict. In the first one, everything was finally resolved and they came away with great joy because they understood that the gospel was secure. And in the second one, there's a tremendous fear that the gospel itself was at stake and it could be the beginning of the end of the faithful preaching of the good news of redemption in Jesus Christ. They couldn't be more different. And so as we turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, with that as a little bit of background and with the text having already been read to you, let's go to God's Word. The first point that I want to make this morning is that you must understand freedom from the law. That's the first point, freedom from the law. We see this in verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas, it's another name for Peter, another name for Simon. Kids, if you were here last week, the fill in the blank was for Cephas even though I know there was one fewer blanks than there was letters in the name Cephas, and some of you were very concerned that you might not have the right answer, I am here to put your little minds at ease. You got the right answer. It was Cephas. Cephas is just another way of talking about Peter, another name for his nickname, which meant rock, which was the rock of the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And it says, when Cephas came north up into Antioch, to see Paul and his ministry, Paul, instead of receiving him, instead of putting his arms around him, instead of welcoming him in for coffee, says, I opposed him to his face. I love the fact that Paul does not evaluate man according to his face either. God doesn't do that. We saw in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, I went down to Jerusalem And I went to talk to the important people, though who they are is not relevant to me. They're not important in my opinion. God doesn't even consider their face, what they are on the outside. Paul says, I don't consider it either. I opposed him, in fact, to his face. Not only am I unconcerned about his face, I'm going to get in his face. And he didn't do it privately. You might say, now why wouldn't Paul, in order to preserve the reputation of the church there in Antioch, have done this privately? Doesn't the church get enough criticism? Isn't there enough bad press out there about the church and about how the leaders never seem to get along? I mean, isn't there enough division already? Why would we want to introduce more of that into our movement? Aren't we fractured enough? And Paul's answer to that question, were you to ask him, I think would be something along these lines. He would say, when somebody like Peter does something in public that undermines the gospel, it needs to be addressed in public. It needs to be seen that Peter himself is not above being confronted. You know, some people think that because an elder has to be above reproach, he can never be corrected. He can never be wrong. Some people think that in order for church leadership to be a church leadership that has integrity, that you're never allowed to call them out. You're never allowed to question them. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, people who are in leadership, if they are to remain above reproach, must never be above rebuke. Leaders, if they are to remain above reproach, must never be above rebuke. And so what you have here is a very simple confrontation. 
Paul says, I'm not afraid of Peter, and I'm not afraid of confronting him to his face because Peter is wrong. But he's not wrong because I say he's wrong. He's not even wrong just because the Scripture says he's wrong. He's wrong because he says he's wrong. Notice what the verse says. It says, because, this is the purpose, he stood condemned. If you are a thinking reader, you would say at this point, I'm confused because I know for a fact, because you, Pastor John, have relentlessly beat us over the head with this, that we are under no condemnation if we are Christians. In fact, if there's one thing I'm going to remember years from now, it's that we are not under condemnation if we are believers. So how is it possible here that Peter is condemned? Well, the answer comes in the actual word that is used The word that is used here is a word that means against your own knowledge. Against your own knowledge. Peter was condemned in the sense that he knew he was guilty. His own conscience knew he was guilty. Peter had already judged himself. The other word for condemnation, like in Romans 8, 1, is to mean against by way of judgment. Two different words. Two entirely different words in the original language. One has to do with knowledge, experiential knowledge. The other has to do with justice. And so because Peter knew that he was already just in the eyes of God, his conscience would not allow him to stand up under this hypocrisy. You see, the self-condemnation that he felt is one of the key ways in which a person's assurance is undermined. They turn in on themselves. And this is what was happening to Peter. 4, verse 12, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was literally sitting down to table fellowship with Gentiles. Please notice the word eating. If you're a Bible underliner, underline that, and please make a note beside it that this is not merely going to the same restaurant. Because chances are, Some of us will be eating together after this service. Uh, We will be uh, patronizing the same restaurant. Last week when we got together for our fellowship, we were all out there and we were eating together. That is not what is being said here. It's a technical term. To eat together meant to receive somebody and to accept somebody. It would be similar to you saying to somebody, come over to my home, I want you to sit at my table. I want to feed you. I want to care for you. You are welcome around my table. This is what Jesus was accused of doing with sinners. This is one of the reasons the Pharisees hated him, because according to Luke 15, 2, they said, quote, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus had crossed a line You see, it's one thing to preach to sinners. It's something entirely different to eat with sinners. You see, in those days, it's one thing to preach to sinners and tell them that they're sinners and call them to repent of their sin. It's something very different to go to their home or to have them with you and to welcome them around your table and to show them the kind of love and acceptance and reception that Jesus showed the sinners. Brothers and sisters, isn't it wonderful to know that you worship a Savior who receives you as a sinner? 
Isn't it wonderful to know that when you come to him, he doesn't say, wait outside until you're clean, then you can come in. Isn't it wonderful to know that he does not allow the others at the table to look at you and think, why are they here? In fact, we have the privilege of looking around at each other and acknowledging none of us belong here. <laughs> it's only by his mercy and grace that he invites us in. And the only reason that we can sit at his table is because he's washed our feet, because he's washed our hands, because he's clothed us in a borrowed robe of his righteousness. And then he says, come in, and treats us as if we were worthy of it. Why? Because we are, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done for us. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't change your opinion about Christ and about each other, I don't know what will. I really hope that it helps you to put aside not only your unrighteousness, but also your damnable good deeds and everything you think you are going to pin as a ribbon or a medal onto the robes of Christ who has already made you perfect. He says, Peter, you used to eat with these people, and now you've turned away from them. But when they came, these people from James, he drew back. It, it literally means to shrink back. He separated himself. So they arrive, and we don't know for sure that James sent them. They could have just been followers of James. One thing that you will notice in life is that usually the people who are the followers of the great man are way more intense than the great man himself. Usually the person who started the movement is nowhere near as intense as the followers. And so it could very well be that some of these people came from James, and James would have been much more open to this and not condemning of any one of the Gentiles, whereas those who came from James decided to add these restrictions. Peter caved in. He shrunk back. And notice it here. He separated himself, a word that means to take a step back and to draw a boundary marker. Picture this, if you will. You're talking to somebody on the beach, and suddenly somebody comes walking along the beach, and you are terrified that they are going to see you talking to that other person. And so when you see in a distance that person walking towards you, you immediately stop your conversation, you take a few steps back, you turn, and you say to that person in a voice low enough for only them to hear that you're going to draw a line in the sand, and don't you dare come over here. This is what Peter did. He shrunk away. He drew a line in the sand, and he said, you stay over there. I'm over here. And when Paul saw that, he lost it. <laughs> and Paul went straight at him. And it says here, that he drew back, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party were the Jews who believed that you had to be circumcised in order to be truly saved. Note it well, folks. Fear is something that you teach to the next generation. Parents, you will teach your children who to fear. They will either fear God or they will fear man. Oh, we are not born man-fearers and man-pleasers, we are trained to be man-fearers and man-pleasers. 
And parents, if you fear man, if you change your behavior based on who's around, you will teach your children, whether you mean to, it or, mean to or not, how to be exactly the same way. Fear is something you teach. And this is something that Paul did not want to see taught to the next generation. And so verse 13 says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. It had already begun to spread. The way that you treat other people never stays with just you. The people you will not associate with, the people you condemn, the people you judge will always be judged by the people you influence. And this is exactly what's happening. And so Peter's doing this, and others are following him. And in fact, they did this to the following degree so that this is not a purpose clause. This is a cause and effect conjunction. So they were acting. He was acting hypocritically. He refused to eat with the Gentiles. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. They refused to eat with the Gentiles with the cause and effect that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, faithful, friendly Barnabas, can we just acknowledge for a moment that no one is beyond the reach of hypocrisy? I don't care who you look up to in evangelicalism today. I don't care what famous preacher or pastor or radio guy or book writer or conference goer. I don't, it doesn't matter who. No one is above the incremental slide towards hypocrisy and sometimes disqualification. It was just a couple of months ago that I was invited to spend some time with an individual at his home in the evening, time of relaxation with a couple of other pastors. We were together for a workshop and a conference. And as I went into his backyard, into the area where we were going to be seated for the next few hours to enjoy some fellowship, there was seated on the couch out there a gentleman who used to be a very, very well-known, well-respected, popular evangelical preacher and pastor. And he had succumbed to temptation, and he had committed adultery, and he had lost his church, and he had lost his ministry, and he had lost his influence. And I was not aware that he was going to be there, but as I sat with him and talked to him that evening, I was immediately overwhelmed by the reality that this man who is way more gifted than I am, way more influential, way more popular, way more learned, everything, every metrics you could possibly imagine, everything on the dashboard that could be measured or read, he would be greater than me by many times. And yet here we are sitting together, and I'm a pastor, and he's not. Beloved, God does not care how popular or how intelligent or how powerful a preacher is. If he succumbs to those temptations, and lives out a life of hypocrisy, he will be confronted, and he will be judged. I'm not going to lose his salvation. No one can lose their salvation. 
but you can definitely lose the opportunity to influence others for the glory of God. And I believe that Paul would have been willing to go to that extreme with Peter had Peter not repented. Let's take a moment to be thankful that this confrontation didn't end with Peter digging in his heels and saying, no, Paul, you're wrong. I am tired of this antinomianism. I'm tired of your lawlessness. I'm tired of you eating and drinking with these people. I'm tired of you fellowshipping with these non-circumcised heathens. I am done with it. Don't you realize that the gospel is serious? Don't you realize that your life matters? Don't you understand that morality counts? I am tired of it. I am going to dig in my heels, and I'm going to start insisting that these Gentile Christians start living the moral lives that we know we're supposed to. Don't you remember what God said in the Old Testament? Don't you remember the book of Exodus? Don't you remember that you couldn't even take the Passover unless you had been circumcised, whether a Jew or a Gentile proselyte? Who are you to come in and undermine thousands of years of our religious tradition? You want to get in my face? Fine. I'm getting in yours. Had these two men been in the flesh, that's exactly what would have happened. And you know what you would have had? The beginning of the end of Christianity. This was so important that this was the moment where it was going to pivot towards legalism or it was going to pivot towards grace. And because of God's infinite mercy and His plan of redemption and the eternal covenant, He allowed for this to end the way it did where the church wasn't weakened but actually strengthened. Praise God for the boldness of men like Paul to confront important men. And praise God for the humility of important men to receive correction. Amen? May that always be the case. So, Barnabas gets led astray. Probably a low point in the story. A terrible time for Paul. This was not the time when they separated over a disagreement regarding John Mark. This was a deeper divide. And though I'm quite certain that because later on in the ministry, Paul takes John Mark with him, or tells us that at least John Mark is useful to him, there was probably some degree of reconciliation, yes. But this marked the beginning of a very dark and difficult period for the Apostle Paul, where he found himself increasingly isolated. And so he says in verse 14, but very strong contrast, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So you see, there's the problem. What they were doing was against the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That was the essence of the confrontation. How can you do that? How can you make them live like that? Literally, how can you Judaize them? The word is only used here to make someone live like a Jew, to Judaize. It's only used here. But as we said earlier, it's a tactic that may have worked because you didn't have the New Testament at that point. All you had was the Old Covenant. All you had was the Old Testament. And there certainly seemed to be more than one place where a person could build a case for forcing the Gentiles to be circumcised. Paul was in new territory, and he was making a bold stand. But listen, here's the idea from the first point. Nothing is more damning than a gospel with added works. Nothing is more damning than a gospel with added works. 
where you say to somebody, faith alone is not enough, grace alone is not enough, Christ alone is not enough, the solas of the Reformation are not enough, you've got to do that plus this. We're going to talk about it in a few moments, but there is a present battle on the horizon in evangelicalism, a little different for us today than it was for Paul. Let's just think about it for a moment. Paul's writing to Christians during a time where the prevailing threat was Judaism, Jewish culture. We're not battling that today. We're not battling Judaism. We're not battling Jews in our church who want us to become Jews, are we? In all my years of ministry, almost 20 years now, I've encountered one person who had somehow developed a conviction that they had to live a kosher life in order to be a good Christian. I don't know anyone who thinks that we need to live like Jews, adopt Jewish culture. You don't have to circumcise your sons. There's nothing in Jewish culture that is currently threatening the church. Fast forward a few hundred years and you get to the time of the Reformation. It's very interesting that in Luther's commentary on Galatians, which is fantastic, by the way, he wasn't battling Jews. He was battling, what? The Roman Catholics. You see, the Roman Catholics were definitely in the church at that point, and they were trying to pull people away from this reformation that was happening. And they said, on top of everything else, you need to acknowledge the Pope. On top of the gospel, you need to acknowledge tradition. On top of the gospel, you need to have indulgences. On top of the gospel, you need to have grace infused into you. <laughs> you see, to them, grace was not imputed. To them, grace was injected. And the first injection you got, your first sin vaccine came when you got baptized. And to them, it was regenerative. And from that moment forward, all the other sacraments had to be followed so that every time you came to Mass, you got a little bit more injection of grace until one day you became good enough to only spend a few million years in purgatory and not in hell. And Luther was railing against this and fighting against this, but once again, I don't see that here. I haven't had to counsel many of you because of your lingering attachment to Roman Catholicism. So what is our battle? I believe that our battle today is a misunderstanding about justification. It's always a misunderstanding about justification, but today it's a misunderstanding about justification and the idea that you are justified by faith, but that your final justification, your final security in the end is based on your works. And we'll get into that in a moment. That's just a preview. But for you to understand true freedom from the law is the idea in verses 11 through 14. Now, let's look at the second one, which is faith in the work of Christ. They're really connected. For you to have freedom from the law, you must have faith in the work of Christ. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What an interesting statement. It almost seems to contradict everything Paul's been saying thus far. What do you mean? You're Jews? Are you special because you're a Jew? No, but what he is saying is that Jews by birth versus the Gentile sinners. We are Jews, we being Paul and Peter, the two of us, we're Jews. We, we come from the, the Jewish line, the Jewish tradition. We grew up Jewish. We can talk about stories of what it was like to grow up Jewish. We're not like these Gentiles. They didn't grow up with that. They grew up in, in pagan idol worship. And so he says, you and me, Peter, we're, we're Jews. We're not like these Gentile sinners like we used to call them. And so he says, clearly, 
They didn't have the covenants. They didn't have the law of Moses. They didn't have the civil and ceremonial regulations. Yet even we, look at verse 16, even we, you and me, Peter, even we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. <laughs> and we're Jews. We're the ones who have the law. We're the ones who were given the law. And you and I know better. You and I know that this law was never designed to make us righteous enough to stand before God. You and I both know that we were given this Rubik's Cube that could never be solved so we can sit there in frustration, trying and trying, and finally having to cry out to God for help. You know that this was never really the way that we reach God. And yet, like so many things that are good, the law was good. It was a good guide. It was a good law. It revealed the heart of God. It was a way to bridge the sinfulness of man to the offer of the gospel of justification in Christ. We knew that eventually it would lead to something that was permanent and perfect, a sacrifice that could come that could atone for sin. What man wants to do is instead of taking this thing which was a bridge to truth, they want to pop it up and make it a ladder to heaven. And it became something that you didn't cross, but something that you climbed. And the better you were at climbing, the better you felt about yourself and the more respect you earned from others a few more rungs below you. And Paul says to Peter, come on. You know full well that that was not the way we're justified but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to, and here's the purpose clause, in order that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. These works of the law were never sufficient to save us because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you see the repetition? This book is repetitive, but we need repetition because it leads us to a deeper appreciation of the whole truth of the gospel, of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Because that law, that perfect standard, it had to be met, but that's not the way you could be justified. And Peter and Paul both know that only Christ, who fulfilled it perfectly, was able to give the righteousness to an individual through faith that allowed him to be justified by God. And so, verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too, it's very emphatic in the Greek, we too, you and me, Paul and Peter, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, meaning that we are saved apart from the works of the law that the Jews demanded for final justification, Remember earlier he said we're not like those Gentile sinners? He says to Peter, hey, you and I are sinners, as a matter of fact. You and I are justified even though we're sinners, even though we didn't obey the law perfectly. You and I both know that. You and I know that we're justified by Christ and Christ alone as Jews who now understand how the law works. And he says that we were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? What a fascinating question. The word servant there is the word deacon. Is Christ a deacon of sin? You could call him that. Huh. We have deacons here in our church. The diaconate. 
deacons or men or women who are used within the church to provide uh, for the needs of people within the church in various ways. And, and oftentimes we will refer to a deacon as the deacon of fill in the blank, doing a certain work here in the church. And so Paul is saying, look, does that make Christ a deacon of sin, a servant of sin? What does that mean? What he's saying is, are we being encouraged to just go on sinning because it doesn't matter after all? He says to Paul, we're both sinners and we were justified by faith in Christ. And so he's anticipating the argument, oh, does that mean that Christ is just serving up a big old plate of sin and saying it doesn't matter how you live. Go ahead and do whatever you want because I'm just going to justify you anyway. And Peter's asking, like, uh, or Paul's asking a hypothetical question. And it's a question that you might be asking. Maybe you're understanding the freedom of the gospel for the first time and you're asking yourself, well, wait a minute, that seems to blow up all of the moral structure that I grew up with. It seems to suggest almost that I'm offered salvation through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are. And for some people, it's very hard to accept. And so they anticipate the argument, and he answers it here with these words, certainly not, end of verse 17. It couldn't get stronger. Certainly not. Why, Paul? Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, means to destroy something, if I, if I rebuild a system of righteousness based on the law, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Consider this, everybody. Paul says, if I go back, if I reject faith alone for my salvation, and I rebuild a system of works to get to God because I don't want to be a sinner, then all I've done is reconstruct a system, a tower that is going to fall over and crush me because I can never do it. This is his whole argument in Romans chapter 2. If you choose law, you've got to go all the way and do it perfectly, and you're never going to be able to do that. It's the argument in James 2, 9 and 11, where if you fail in even one point, you have violated all of it. The takeaway is this, beloved. There is no hope of obeying what I rebuild. Even a law that I would rebuild to kind of make myself feel like I'm contributing I wouldn't even be able to live up to that. Because, verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that, here's the purpose, I might live to God. The only way you're going to be able to live to God is if you kill the law. The law has no power over you. And he uses vivid language in verse 20, probably the, the centerpiece of the entire section that we've been looking at. You've all memorized this likely before, but listen to it again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the act of obedience. He says that I was crucified with Christ, crucified to my efforts of obeying the law, crucified as one who deserved to die for violating that law, and therefore it is no longer I who live, but the one who lives in me is Christ. He is living through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is living out the act of obedience every single day to the law, which guarantees that no matter when I die, I stand before the Lord completely justified. 
That's the active part. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. I love the fact that he adds that. He could have just said gave himself. He could have just said died for me. He could have just said came from heaven for me. But he chooses to remind us that the reason he did it was that he loved you. Why did he come? He came because he loved you. Don't be afraid to tell people that. Don't be afraid it's going to sentimentalize the gospel. Don't be afraid it's going to dumb it down. Don't be afraid they're going to misunderstand that. They need to understand that. The motive for the crushing of the Son was love. Love that we can't even comprehend. And He gave Himself. These are verbs that could literally be translated, having loved me, having given Himself up for me. Gave Himself up on the cross. Gave Himself up to pay the penalty I deserved. Lived out that passive obedience of receiving in Himself and His body the curse of the law. Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. The takeaway is this, that without the true gospel, you inhabit the doldrums of self-justification. The doldrums are a literal area on the ocean where the trade winds don't go, and there's nothing but stillness, and sailing ships that got stuck in there oftentimes uh, remained there for months or years, and everyone on the ship died because they could never get out of it. There was nothing to push them out. And I know Christians who feel like they are living in sort of the doldrums of self-justification because they can never do enough to feel like they have earned the salvation that has been given to them. That's the first problem. Or you end up on the treadmill of final justification. I mentioned this earlier. I don't think our problem today is Judaism. I don't think our problem today is Roman Catholicism. Those are both irrelevant to most of us. Our problem today is the notion that the harder I work on this treadmill of good works, the more I'm going to increase the odds of doing well in the final judgment, and just maybe I'll get some of those crowns. The stupidity, the absurdity, the asinine, ridiculous teachings that somehow you're going to get a crown at the end, that you're going to get some sort of ribbon, some sort of reward, that you're going to somehow be given at the end of the day something because you did so well here. The idea that that drives people to therefore live in such a way as to hope that in the end their final justification will be achieved because of their good works is what's threatening us today. And some very well-known evangelical writers and preachers have been promoting this. Here's what you need to remember. If you adopt that position, you will find yourself believing and working as opposed to receiving and resting. If you go down that road, you will find yourself focused entirely on trying to believe enough and work enough as opposed to simply receiving and resting. There was a Puritan named Richard Baxter who was well-known and was attacking much of these doctrines that we're talking about today. And within the Puritan writers, there was a, a lot of conflict about this. And one of the things that we know is that in the Christian confessions, they went out of their way to clarify what I just said. The Westminster Confession of Faith, 
followed by the Savoy Declaration, which was basically a way to incorporate congregational, individual congregational churches into this. And then finally, the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1644 and 1689. Each one of those were absolutely crystal clear that you know you've got a true gospel when it's defined as receiving and resting. The London Baptist Confession of Faith 1689 best summarizes what our pastors here believe in terms of how to articulate doctrine at a deeper level. Let me just read something to you. Chapter 11 on justification, part 2, says, Faith which receives Christ's righteousness and depends or rests on Him is the sole instrument of justification. Later on, in talking about saving faith, it says this, So the Christian is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth that he has believed and to see and respond to the different kinds of teaching which different passages of Scripture contain. Saving faith equips him to perceive and obey the commands, hear the threatenings with fear and respect, and to embrace the promise of God for his life and the life to come. But the first and most important acts of saving faith are those directly to do with Christ. When the soul accepts, receives, and rests upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Brothers and sisters, that's it. It is a receiving and a resting. Parents, how do you explain the gospel to your children? Is it, well, pray a prayer, do this thing, give up that action? Or is it son, daughter, you want to have a talk about the gospel? I would love to talk about the gospel. And they say, but dad, I'm not really sure that I'm a Christian. And you say, why is that? Well, I don't really obey Jesus enough. And you can say, son, don't worry, neither do I. You say, Dad, I I don't know that I believe enough. You say, Son, don't worry, neither do I. He says, Dad, but you don't understand. You know, there are times when when I'm not even sure that God is out there. And you say, Son, I struggle with the same thing. And he says, Well, then how do I know that I'm saved? And the answer is, Son, daughter, have you received from Christ his offer to rescue you and give you his righteousness and pay for your sin? Yeah, I have. Though every day I have to remind myself of it, I feel like I'm kind of struggling. Okay. And then are you able to rest in it? Can you show the confidence that you believe it and you can rest in it without having to do all of these works to try to prove it? You see, that is what puts somebody on the right path. And that is why when they get into their 20s and 30s and 40s, and there's absolutely no fruit in their life, and there's no evidence of salvation, and nothing has changed They have not been guided in such a way as to look back on some lame activity that they did and say, no, I guess Christ failed me because I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I threw the pine cone in the fire at camp. I guess it's all a sham. Brothers and sisters, let's not raise a generation that is bought into decisional regeneration or somehow everything has been changed simply because of some activity they've done or been let in. This would actually do damage to the gospel, which is why Paul says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through 
the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Friends, you can cross out the word righteousness if that's what it says in your Bible. It's the word justification, and it makes more sense in the context. I don't nullify the grace of God. The grace of God is what we're talking about here. I don't nullify it or destroy it. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He died for nothing. He got sent for nothing because law was enough. Paul says, no way. Christ wouldn't come to die for his sheep for no reason. He came for us. He came for those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. He laid down his life particularly to atone for their sin because none of them could come to him through the law. So, with that, I'm going to conclude very briefly with what I've referred to as the assassins of assurance. The assassins of assurance, they're looking through a scope aiming at your assurance, and they want to put a bullet through its brain. And the way that that is done is by introducing two things, legalism or antinomianism. Legalism, properly defined, is not what some people say today, which is some sort of high moral standard they decide to live up to. Legalism is a misunderstanding and application of the good law of God. The law is good. The law was created by God. It represents His holiness. But legalism is this. By definition, as simple as I can make it, legalism is law without love. It's law without love. Have you ever been in a place where there's a lot of law and no love? What about the opposite? You ever been in a place where there's so much love that no matter what you're asked to do, it's a joy to do it? That's a question I want to leave you with. To understand legalism is to see it as simply this. It is law without love. It is law without the person of God. It is what Eve was deceived with because she somehow, by the cunning of Satan, was able to be manipulated into thinking that this rule that God has made means that God doesn't love me. Legalism always separates God's law from God's love. And this will undermine your assurance because you will see every single moral imperative in the Bible as something that is a crushing weight you have to live under. And it'll rob you of your assurance and your joy. You will be a very obedient, moral, miserable Christian. And you'll be judgmental. <laughs> you will look down on everybody who doesn't live up to the standard you have. The second one is antinomianism. This means no law. This means throwing the law away completely. And what that is, by definition, is law absent from the Christian life. It's not law without love. It's law without life. It, it, it is saying, I'm just going to throw the law away because there can be no good in it. That's antinomianism. No. People who really understand the law understand that it's a life-giving thing in terms of the third use of the law as a guide so that you can live a life that pleases the Lord out of gratitude. You, you want to. That's why David can write that day and night he meditates on God's law, and it's a delight to him. If you throw it all away, you will live a life of unmitigated sin, lawlessness, and immorality, and you will suffer all of the consequences that come from that. And both will be miserable. Sinclair Ferguson, in his fantastic book, The Whole Christ, calls these the non-identical twins. 
because one is always based on the other. And he gives this warning to pastors, and I am way over time, and I understand that, and I ask your forgiveness. And since you're godly people, you will give it to me. <laughs> and in all sincerity, in all sincerity, I had every intention of making this a very brief sermon today, but I hope that what has extended it has just been a genuine expression of deep pastoral concern for where we are at this stage in redemptive history and the risks that we face. But a very good warning comes to me from Sinclair Ferguson in his book. And he says this, quote, legalism is embedded in the human heart virtually from the very day of man's creation. And it resides in us from conception. It is, however, all the more complex an issue among God's people if their pastors themselves have the same legal streak that flows from distorted instincts towards the Lord, but confuse those instincts with a gospel truth. Let me just translate that. It's even more difficult when the pastors have a bent towards legalism, towards where they think their job is to give you a bunch of practical how-tos and what-tos at the end of every sermon, so you go out with a list of the things that, oh, I need to do this and this and this and this, and that means it's a practical, helpful sermon. And by the way, evangelical churches are filled with pastors that not only have that bent naturally, but were trained to be that way in seminary. He goes on, for then... Not only is the truth exchanged for a lie, but the lie is treated as though it were truth. It is failure here that leads to the mistake of prescribing a dose of antinomianism to heal legalism and vice versa, rather than the gospel antidote of our grace union with Christ. You see, one group says, you don't have assurance because you don't have enough faith. And the other group says, you don't have assurance because you don't repent enough. And both groups are wrong because faith and repentance are not something that is a cause or a condition of grace, but only a consequence of grace. And because of God's grace in regenerating you, a dead sinner because of His own sovereign will and unconditional election, are you regenerated and able as a consequence to have faith and to repent of your sin? You see, a proper understanding of the gospel doesn't diminish faith, doesn't diminish repentance. It just puts them in the right order. And when it's in the right order, beloved, everything makes sense. And it's so much easier to receive it with joy and with full assurance and thanksgiving for all that Christ has done for us.